But if you do need to change something, then I think it becomes urgent because otherwise what you do is you end up in this really frustrating you know, painful circle of saying, well, just do it this way. You just need to want it more. And people are like, but I'm trying and it's not working. You know, it's no fun for anybody to be in, right? So you want to bring tools to the table that people can actually use instead of just getting more entrenched in what you're doing and more frustrated and, you know, and continuing to damage that morale by using strategies that just aren't going to change people. Welcome to CEO on the Go the show about personal and professional growth for busy leaders like you. I'm Gail Lance, and I'm here to help you think differently, solve big problems, and inspire change. It's tough to do on your own and even with a team, but it is possible. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode. I'm so glad you're here and hope you're doing well. If you've ever thought your team was a little complacent and that you just might need to push them harder or get them to care more, think again. My guest today is shining a lot of light on that topic. Sharon Lipinski is founder and CEO of Habit Mastery Consulting, where she works with corporations to help people create better habits to get best results. She's done extensive research on habits and complacency related to business and employee behaviors. And as you learn more about her, I think you'll see that she is everything but complacent, at least in the way most of us think about complacency, then she'll help you see new ways to think about it. But just to illustrate her drive and accomplishments, I'll share just a few with you. Sharon is a certified gamification for training developer. She's a speaker and TV personality, author of 365 Ways to Live Generously, Simple Habits for a Life That's Good for You and for Others, a daily book that helps people create the habits that will get them healthy in body, mind, and spirit. And an interesting fun fact is that Sharon holds a Guinness World Record for the longest line of toothbrushes three and a half miles. And that charity event, which was held back in 2019, collected 55,000 toothbrushes and 17,000 tubes of toothpaste for Colorado children. As founder of the nonprofit Change Gangs, Sharon raised more than $100,000 for charity. That's so impressive and a shining example of doing work that matters. Sharon's award-winning articles have appeared in a variety of industry publications. She's delivered more than 200 trainings and helps organizations increase their targeted safety behavior by up to 150%. And I'm including in the show notes a link to her article that served as inspiration for our conversation. It's called Understanding the Biological Basis of Complacency, which happened to win the Professional Safety Journals Award for third best article of the year, by the way. I hope our conversation helps you better understand complacency and think more about the habits that have been created or new habits you or those you lead want to create. Enjoy my conversation with Sharon Lipinski. Sharon, welcome to CEO on the go. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I know that we have a mutual friend and colleague who said, Sharon's research needs to be understood by every CEO who wants to engage their people for the best business results. So I thought, 
this is perfect. I need to bring Sharon on the show, right? And I know that you have lots that you could talk about. We're going to focus a little bit more specifically on complacency, but I know that you work in the world of habits in general. So maybe you could just give a little intro in terms of what the nature of your work is before we dive into complacency. Sure. Well, we do a lot of work with utility companies, construction, oil and gas, uh, local governments. And what we help people do is master their habits. And sometimes that's around specific safety procedures. And sometimes it's around complacency fighting behaviors like situational awareness and critical thinking. Sometimes that's around communication and leadership because we're not born. We're not born good communicators. These are skills and we can practice them until they become a natural part of the way we interact with people. Good. So when it comes to complacency, I know that that in and of itself is a broad topic. It has lots of different implications. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that you see out there as people are understanding complacency? Well, I think the biggest misconception is that people think of complacency as a conscious choice or a moral failing, and that if we just tried harder or cared more, we would be able to avoid it. Uh, But in fact, I would argue that complacency is a relentless biological drive It's not something we could ever get rid of. In fact, it might even be the brain's default operating state because I think of complacency as a byproduct of habit. And we know from a study from Duke University that people on average will spend about 40% of their day engaged in habit. Now think about that for a second because what that means is that for 40% of your day, you're not thinking about the thing you're doing while you're doing it. And we have all kinds of habits. We have the things we traditionally think of as habits, brushing your teeth, exercising, but we also have habits of thoughts, feelings, you know, reacting calmly in stressful situations is a habit. Reaching out for help is a habit. We have habits of relationship because by and large, you're interacting with people in pretty much the same way right? You're talking about the same things. You're doing the same things with the same people. We are all creatures of habit. So habits can be positive or negative. They can serve you well, or they can work against you. So is is one of the keys becoming more aware of them then? Yeah. So, I mean, habits are really neutral. They are. And when we think- Okay. Interesting. All right. Yeah. Neutral. They exist. They exist. And then the question is, is when we're evaluating as good or bad, we're thinking about the consequences of those. And that's why we decide. But a habit, uh, and it might help if we talk a little bit about what a habit is, because we tend to think of habit as a behavior. And that's not really correct. It is a behavior, but it is a behavior that is driven by a biological basis. Like it is an actual physical thing and it exists inside your brain. Okay. Say more about that then. How, How does the brain work? So let's imagine that you're going to do something for the first time. What's going to happen is your prefrontal cortex is going to fire up. This is the part of your brain that sits on top of your eyes. It's the most recently evolved part of our brain, and it's incredibly powerful. And if you look at the things that the prefrontal cortex is involved in, like it's a wish list of behavior. (laughs) We would be more productive. We would enjoy our days more. We would be safer, like all of these wonderful things, right? But the prefrontal cortex takes a lot of effort to run. Now, the second part of your brain that's going to fire up is your striatum. Now, your striatum is about the size of a walnut. It sits right on top of your brainstem. And this is your habit center. It is also your reward center and your goal-motivated behavior center. So you're doing something for the first time. These two parts of your brain light up. 
And because your brain wants you to be successful at this activity, all the neurons during this activity are firing. But your brain is also a really quick learner. And so the next time it does it, it doesn't have to work quite as hard. We have a few less neurons fire. And then you do it again and again and again, and it gets easier and easier and fewer and fewer neurons have to fire in order to complete the same task. Now, when something has been repeated often enough that it's become a habit, it's not all the neurons during the activity. It's just the ones at the beginning and at the end. And the rest of that time, you're on autopilot. And on top of that, the prefrontal cortex no longer needs to be involved in that activity. And so you have lost all of that, you know, amazing functionality that the prefrontal cortex can bring to a situation. I understand that that's important for people to know in terms of what they can actually do to affect change in their brain or change in the way that they're operating. What would be some of the first steps that they would need to consider? Well, the first step I think you considered is, you mentioned, is knowing, you know, being aware of what your habits are. And I think when we're trying to create a new habit, it is a question of repeating something over and over and over to you carve that neural pathway in your brain. And when you're trying to break a habit, what you're trying to do is to stop using a neural pathway that already exists. And this is a very difficult thing for the brain to do. And I think it's why we underappreciate um, how powerful habits are. And, and it's why we think, well, we can just use our willpower, we can use our motivation, and we can buckle down and we can stick to it, and we're going to be able to change things. But, you know, that groove in your brain is very powerful. Uh, so willpower and motivation really are not enough to make it happen. So this time of year, we're recording this in January, toward the end of January, February is a time when a lot of people who tried to establish habits are failing or realizing it's a lot more difficult. Do you have any advice for making that stick? Because like you said, it takes some time to keep doing it over and over. Is it just that we need to be more patient, give it longer, jump back in, try again? What advice would you have for that? Well, we have so many, yeah, <laughs> so many, so much advice. How much time do we have? <laughs> I would be remiss not to ask that question. Yeah. I think that's in the back of a lot of people's minds this time yeah. of year, especially. For sure. Well, uh, let me start by saying, okay, so repetition is the mother of habit. That is the most important thing to know, right? Nobody says to themselves, you know, gosh, Sharon, if I just buckle down, I stick to it. If I get my friends and my family to support me, I bet that I can make a habit of going to McDonald's for lunch every day, right? Nobody says that, and yet we plenty of people have that habit. That's because we are what we repeatedly do. And if you take care of the repetition, the habit takes care of itself. But it's the repetition part that gets tricky. So my favorite strategy for this is what I call the minimum requirement. It is the tiniest, littlest thing that you can do to keep that habit alive. Because it's not about intensity. It's not about the duration. It's just the simple act of doing it. So if you are working on flossing your teeth, it's like, I'm going to floss one tooth. If you're working on exercising, I'm going to do one jumping jack. I'm going to do one minute of sit-ups. It's so, so small. You can always do more, but you can never do less. Now, sometimes what will happen is it's just the getting started. That's hard, right? And you're like, well, as long as I'm here, I might as well finish flossing the rest of my teeth. As long as I have my workout clothes on and I did a jumping jack, let me just finish, right? And in those cases, fine, great, go for it. 
But even on those days where you just do that minimum requirement, that's a win because you've laid another filament along that neural pathway. And so that's one of my favorite strategies. Good. And kind of translating that into business and leadership specifically, it might be something like say that a leader has a commitment to spend more time with their team or get to know uh, more of their people. So building in time on their calendar to have a conversation once a week or, or something, like you said, it doesn't have to be big, but just a small change to spend 10 or 15 minutes checking in with someone each week, which may be more than they ordinarily would have done the year before. Is that something yes. like that? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Make it easy to start. And as that neural pathway gets deeper, you can make it longer. You can make it more complex, but in the beginning, you want to start simple. And I would also add to that, if you can do it every day, Every we tend to have habits fall into two categories, weekdays and weekends. So what can you do every weekday um, so that you know that the first thing that I do in the morning is I check my email and then I reach out to somebody on my team. Even if it's super tiny in the beginning, but I know this and then this happens. And that that's the team that you want to get comfortable with is that after this, then I spend time with my team. It's it's the regularity of that occurring that is going to make the difference. Good. And I know you do a lot of work in the area of safety. So uh, the implications with regard to complacency are evident. But I, you state that this is an urgent problem. So I was curious to know if you could just elaborate on why this is so urgent. Well, you know, I, I think it's not urgent as long as you're perfectly fine with exactly what is happening now. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> if you're fine with the status quo, it's not urgent. But if you do need to change something, then I think it becomes urgent because otherwise what you do is you end up in this really frustrating, you know, painful circle of saying, well, just do it this way. You just need to want it more. And people are like, but I'm trying and it's not working. You know, it's no fun for anybody to be in, right? So you want to bring tools to the table that people can actually use instead of just getting more entrenched in what you're doing and more frustrated and, you know, and continuing to damage that morale by using strategies that just aren't going to change people. Yeah, that's such a great point to and just to reiterate that so many leaders, I think sometimes feel like if things aren't working, they just need to speak louder, yell louder, push harder. And in a lot of in a lot of cases that can actually have the, the opposite effect that they're looking for. So it's just these simple acts that you're talking about paying more attention to those kinds of details and habits that could really make a big impact. Um, good. What else can leaders do to, to manage complacency? I hear a lot of leaders complain about that. My team's just so complacent now, or they just seem to be, sometimes they'll use the word lethargic or they're not paying attention. So what, what advice would you have for leaders who, who make those kinds of statements? Well, you know, I think one thing that we want to think about is do employees have the resources available to not be complacent? We have a limited amount of cognitive energy to use every day. And if that cognitive energy is being used up for things that people have going on in their personal lives with pandemic stress, financial problems, coworker drama, right? Toxic work environments. If you have so much cognitive energy, you know, being used up on this thing, they have less available for you and for creative work. And so one of the things that I would suggest looking at is like, well, how much can we take off of people's plates? What are things they don't need to be doing, don't need to worry about? And that will give them more time and energy to direct to, you know, more productive activities. So prioritizing, perhaps then making sure that they're focused on the most important work and removing some of the other aspects that really aren't as 
as important? Yeah, removing some of the aspects that aren't important. So, you know, I've had clients uh, end up shadowing their foreman to figure out like, what are their foremen doing every day? And they realize like, well, we think the most important thing that foremen do are these five things, but they're doing all of these things. What can we take off? What can go to other people so they can focus on what they really need? And you can think about employee resources and flexible work schedules. How can we take stress out of people's lives so that, again, they have that cognitive energy to direct to their work and it's not being used up, you know, by other things. So really assessing what the job entails, how people are going about doing the work individually and collectively as a team. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And certainly appreciating the role that stress and workplace relationships can really add to that in an unproductive manner. Yeah. Um, Another angle on this, uh, C-suite leader, someone who's extremely senior level who may feel complacent. It's hard for senior executives to admit that sometimes, but that happens too if someone has been in a position for a long time. I know that there's some organizations that are working hard to make sure that people who've been in a role for a very long time don't become complacent. Uh-huh. They'd like to challenge their executives um, in some ways. So what what do you what would you suggest for people who are really at a, a very senior level if they start feeling some some form of complacency? So complacency happens as often to the CEOs as it does the front line, right? It's all happening to all of us all of the time. And because complacency is a byproduct of habit, one of the things that we look for are what are like anti-habit habits? What are these things that we can do regularly that are going to really force us to reassess our environments or the problem that we're working on? So I would look for what are what's some key time during in your day where you can ask better questions or get out on the front line and and see what's really going on. But looking for these anti-habit habits, these activities that will force you to re-engage and think about things differently. And again, maybe in the course of your work, you have found some you know, activities like that that are useful for CEOs. Yeah. What I often advise is, is something like you said, get them in a different environment and also um, help them learn something new to challenge the way that they're thinking. Um, anytime you can introduce something new, you're more of an expert on the brain, but I, I just think it helps people in general to, to up their game whenever you can be around people and not become um, stagnant in how you're thinking or being around the same people all the time, getting into that group think as well, which can be problematic. So um, I really do like emphasizing learning new things, building skills too. You can do that at even the most senior levels. So, and I love seeing that as a stronger emphasis with organizations that I'm working with, really trying to uh, help executives develop themselves even at the highest level. Yeah. Yeah. And learning and and going into kind of a new, but maybe unrelated field. And you're like, oh, well, what they're doing applies to what I'm doing. So it's really kind of forcing yourself, scheduling in that time to bring in these anti-habitual things, things that get you out of your regular patterns with the regular people that you talk to. Yeah. And a lot of the senior executives I work with, they engage with people who are even outside of their industries and peer groups that I run and things like that. So I think that that's helpful too, just to shake up your thinking and to challenge um, how you're going about trying to solve a problem when you see someone else who's so different and can offer a solution uh, that you may not have considered. So um, yeah, those are just some few a few tips to consider. Um, are there any other specific strategies or actions that you think leaders in general can do? Yeah. 
So one thing that we talk a lot about in the safety realm, and, and I'd be curious if you think that there's applications from your work as well as we talk about, you know, strategically re-engaging the prefrontal cortex. So building in intentional pauses that get people to value, like, am I, you know, where is this going? Do I want to be going in that direction? Should I continue that? But, you know, we're so, you know, likely to just continue coasting on autopilot in a specific direction unless something forces us to change. Uh, so we talk again about those very strategic uh, pauses or, or here's an interesting example. Uh, so in a Ford factory, uh, in one of their assembly lines, and you can imagine that this is very repetitive work, right? They have a smart drill. And this drill shines a light onto the surface. And if it's a green light, it means you're using the right tool in the right location. And if the light is red, then one of those things is off. And that is a visual cue that, hey, something is different here than than it should be. And it gives people an opportunity to re-engage. So I think it's fun to think about where are all the places that we can force people to re-engage and let them know, wait a second, something is different here. Do I want to continue? Yeah, I would tell people too to use the internal indicator in terms of how they're feeling, you know, if they're feeling excited and motivated and energized, that would be a, a green light, so to speak. Whereas if they really feel like they're, they're uh, not being productive, um, not achieving the results that they want, there's probably a reason for that something that needs to be looked into. Um, I also like what you said about pausing to just um, take a break in your thinking. And I think executives struggle with that so much. They feel like they have to be on and doing all the time. Whereas if you can take a little time out, uh, I found a lot of them don't know what to do with themselves when they're not working on a problem um, and they're not uh, on task. And so I think that there's increasing evidence that being able to just take a break, like you said, reduce that cognitive load and allow some space in, in your mind and your thinking so that fresh ideas can come in new ways to approach problems, that that's another thing. And that's different for everyone. Some people can take five or 10 minutes during the day. Some people need to get off the grid, um, you know, take a couple of days out of the office or away from work. So I guess it all depends on the situation, but I think that that's really important to do. Yeah. And oftentimes in the, in the safety realm, it involves checking with another person. Are you seeing this too? Did did I act, you know, can you verify that this change has been made and not just relying on yourself to be, you know, responsible for all of those details? Yeah, for sure. Validating. Um, good. Well, I know that we're we're sort of reaching the end of our time, but I just wanted to see if you had any final thoughts or suggestions for leaders who are really trying to minimize the risk of complacency and and become more aware themselves. Yeah, well, I think I would might wrap up with a little bit with what I started with, right? Because repetition is the mother of habit. So we need to hear things more Good. than once. Hear the so same message over and over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing this intentionally. We, you know, we have to remember really that it is a relentless biological drive that is happening to all of us all of the time. And if we don't want that to happen, we have to act accordingly. We have to build in these anti-habit habits. We have to build in these strategic pauses that force people to re-engage, that force them to think about things differently. It's not going to happen on its own and nor should it really. I mean, habits are truly a phenomenal tool for the human brain. They do end up being this double-edged sword. So you got to be able to identify the places where you want to step in, where you want these things to happen, and then put in those those processes and those strategic pauses that are going to force it to happen. 
That's great. Have you ever worked with a team when you ask them outright, or they can measure as a team how complacent they think that they are? Just as a group discussion? I love that question, though. You know, I would say people are not going to be good measures of their own sense of complacency. Speaking the truth, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, I think we're just not aware of it. You know, I mean, it's like breathing. It's, It's such a natural state for us that it's very hard to notice when you're doing it. Yeah. Good. Well, I was just um, asking because I think that there are, there are different ways you could raise awareness about the issue uh, in conversation with your team. So, um, and, and I highly recommend that they read your article that I'm posting in the show notes that I mentioned called Understanding the Biological Basis of Complacency, because that gets into even more depth and shows more research on the topic that we've talked about today. So, well, Sharon, thank you so much for joining me. Again, I think this is such a timely topic for this time of year. I hope it gives some people some some good food for thought and actions that they can take. Any any final tip or words of encouragement? I uh, know, but thank you so much for having me, Gal. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Good. Thank you. And for everyone else listening in, I hope you have a great rest of the week doing the work that matters to you. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, be sure to share this episode with someone else who might benefit or leave a review. You can join my email list by going to workmatters.com so you don't miss an episode. And there you can learn more about ways we serve mission-driven leaders like you. If there's a challenge you want to discuss, I'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, keep growing as a leader, inspiring change, and doing the work that matters to you.